0: And what happens with Advent is that means Christmas is coming, which right after Christmas, it's Merry Christmas and what? Happy New Year. And so that means we have a new year coming up in a few weeks. And uh, I I talk to people every year, what's your New Year's resolution? Mine is always to preach shorter sermons. So maybe next year that'll actually happen Um, and do some push-ups every day. I've never done that, but one day it's going to happen. But one of the New Year's resolutions that many people often have is they say, I want to read the Bible more many, that's, that's a great resolution to have. And many people will say, you know, hey, I'm going to read the New Testament in 2018. And that's such a great goal. And I commend anyone to do it. But there's this one problem. And it's always that you're so excited to get going. New Year's resolution, you're going to read the Bible. And you're ready to get started. You make your pot of coffee. You get up one morning. You say, it's January 1st. Time to do my Bible reading. You open up to the New Testament. January 1st. Boom. You get hit with Matthew chapter 1. And it says... The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers and Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. And it goes on and on and on. And you're like, I just fell asleep. A genealogy like you're like, I'll try again next year. I just can't get past this. But, you know, the genealogy seems so boring. Oh, just names, a list of names. But I believe there's something really beautiful about it, though. All these names of regular people in the story of God that are central to the story of Jesus. Just Like just this week, my daughter, Edith... She had her picture in the school newsletter, which is basically just like an email that gets sent uh, to all the parents. And it's like a circulation of like 40 people, right? But her picture was on the front page of the newsletter with a little caption that had her name. And my family, like, we're so excited. And, I mean, we're like, we're probably going to print this thing out and put it on the refrigerator. And my daughter's like, this is the first time she's ever been anything. We're like, so excited. And you're like, why are we so excited? Nobody's seeing this, just a bunch of parents. And everybody's kid is in there. Like, it's not like she... And it's like, why are we so excited? Because there's something empowering about seeing your name attached to a story that's bigger than yourself. And that's what's so beautiful about the genealogy of Jesus. And as we start this Advent season, a season of waiting for the Messiah, we have to understand that this genealogy, this long list of 42 names, represents hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting for a king the king who would save the world, the one who would be the wonderful counselor and the prince of peace. And you're like, oh, it's so boring, but there's 42 names and it ends this way. And Mathen, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. And it's amazing because wrapped up within all these names that lead to Jesus are numerous stories of God's faithfulness. And many people, I know many of you at Christmas time, you feel lonely because either you live here in this city and you're far away from your family or perhaps you just don't have family or you don't have uh, loved ones that are close by and you feel lonely or maybe you're not married and that, that makes you sad. And, 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 but this genealogy, the story of Jesus ought to remind us that we're not alone. And that even though we feel lonely and that we're sad at times, our life does have meaning and it does have value. And the theme that you, if you just studied this genealogy that you would find is that God uses, uh, he works through weak and sometimes unimpressive people. Because if you read through that genealogy, pretty much up until the moment that it gets to Jesus, it's just a bunch of people who are sinners just like you and me that God uses to bring about the salvation purposes for the world. And in verse 2, Matthew mentions a guy named Judah. And that's the story I want us to zero in on today. And I want us to look at the life of Judah. Or how Judah, not the life of Judah, but the birth of Judah. And we see how Judah is It's a seemingly boring person in a seemingly boring genealogy. But it teaches us that God can use weak and unimpressive people for His glory. And the story of Judah doesn't start with Judah. It begins with a woman named Rachel. And in Genesis 29, it says this. It says verse 9 Rachel came with her father's sheep for she was a shepherdess Now as soon as Jacob saw Rachel the daughter of Laban his mother's brother and the sheep of Laban his mother's brother Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban's Laban his mother's brother Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud and Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son. And she ran and told her father. So that may have been a little confusing to you, but here's what happens. The story begins with a man named Jacob. Jacob journeys into town. He finds himself at a well, a shepherd's well, where the flocks would have gotten their water. And he looks up. He's at the well. He looks up and right in front of his eyes, he sees this beautiful woman. It's Rachel. Rachel. And we know that she's beautiful because Jacob temporarily loses his mind. And most of you guys in here know exactly what I'm talking about. That moment when you're so taken away with a woman's beauty that you lose all sense of sanity. And you lose control of your words and your actions. And you start flirting, but it's just not coming out right. Like, for example, the first time I met my wife, Rebecca, who is an amazing woman, by the way, at home with a baby with a 102 fever. Um, yeah, Uh, um, but the first time I met my wife, okay, so we were uh, with a bunch of friends. We were down at the, it's actually my group of friends in college and we had taken a trip down to the beach and one friend in my friend group knew Rebecca and was like, why don't you come along? She didn't know any of us though. She only knew one person in our group. And so, but I knew who she was and I was kind of like, Hey, that's a good looking girl. She's going to be on our trip. This is awesome. And so later that night, we got to, we were staying in this big condo, guys on one side, girls on the other, but there's like a common area and we're all watching a movie and we're playing puzzles, right? And you know, my friends and I, we're all having a good time. Like we're talking, we know each other and Rebecca, she doesn't know anybody. And so she's sitting there just working on the puzzle silently. And you know, it's ta- we've been working on this puzzle for an hour. I may have gotten two or three pieces together. We look over and Becca has done like the entire like bottom third of the puzzle. And I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm like, I really want to flirt with this girl. I want her to notice me. And so I said this Rebecca, how are you so good at puzzles? Do you just sit at home every night and work on puzzles? <laughs> that is a true story. And she looked at me and she was like, What did you just say to me? And I was like, I'm sorry. And that was it. I thought I was done. But by God's grace, He put her back in my life. Now we're married, three kids, great into the story. But What do you just sit at home and work on puzzles on that? What was I thinking? I lost my mind because I was just so wrapped up in her beauty. That's what happens with Jacob. Jacob sees Rachel and he's like, I got to do something to get this girl's attention. So he runs up to this well and there's a stone covering the well. And the well was for watering uh, the flocks of sheep. And typically, this is what scholars say, it would have taken a handful of shepherds to roll this thing away. It was a big stone it couldn't have been rolled away by just one person very easily. But Jacob decides, he's like, i got to do something. So he runs over there, and he rolls the stone away by himself. Okay, and you're like, okay, massive feat of strength. That's cool, like impressing the woman. But here's where it gets funny. Some scholars I was reading this week say that on, on his own, it probably would, have, probably would have taken him anywhere from 10 to 20 minutes to roll the stone away. So, I mean, like, he, he rolls, he's like, i got to impress this woman. So a feat of strength, and you imagine he, like, rips his shirt. He's like, I'm going to roll this stone away to impress her. And then it's, like, 15 minutes of him, like, ah, ah, and everybody's like, what is this guy doing? And then he rolls the stone away, and finally everybody's like, okay, that took a little bit of time, but we're pretty impressed. Like, that guy's strong. And then Jacob steps up his game, big time. He runs over to Rachel, never met her before, and he kisses her. And you're like... Way to go, man. Like, way to go, Jacob. Impressive feat of strength. Grab the girl. Get the kiss. Like, that's strong game. Like, he's got it going on. But then it gets really weird. His emotions take the best of him, and he starts crying. It says he wept aloud. See, the emotion of the moment, it was just too much for him. I mean, he's just, and you can tell he's just madly in love with Rachel because he's got all these emotional issues, and he goes from rolling away a massive stone to crying in some girl's arms whom he's never met in just a matter of seconds. I say all that to say, for those of you ladies who are single, you can make men lose control sometimes. And so I just need you to know, if there's a guy that's ever just acting weird around you, it means he's in love with you. So roll with it. But Jacob, he's just madly in love with this woman, and so he does this thing, and Rachel falls for it. And it says she runs and she takes Jacob to introduce him to her father, which was also his uncle. That's another thing. Uh, but verse 15, it says, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsmen, you should, therefore, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. It says that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel, though, she was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel. And he told Laban, he said, I will serve you for seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than that I should give her to any other man. Stay with me. And it says, so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love that he had for her everybody's like oh that's so sweet I actually wrote a letter to my wife one time when we were dating and I was like like Jacob I will do whatever it takes to marry you baby even if it takes seven years and you think that's charming right I probably didn't mean it I don't know if I could have waited that long but you're like that's so charming right I love her so much um but listen if you walk away from this story thinking it's a romantic comedy you've missed the point you've missed the point because this is not a romantic comedy this is not a story about the guy getting the girl. This is a story about a dysfunctional family. And at the center of that dysfunctional family are two sisters. An older sister who has always played second fiddle to her prettier younger sister. And it says, we, it tell, the Bible tells us about both sisters. And we already know that Rachel was beautiful because of Jacob's love for her. It says that she was beautiful in both form and appearance. And Jacob loved her. But Leah, on the other hand, it says her eyes... Were weak, And we're not entirely sure exactly, or I'm not entirely sure what her eyes were weak actually means, but most scholars agree that they're not talking about her vision. They're talking about her looks. She was unattractive. And Jacob never noticed her, and to him she was just completely un- unnoticeable, invisible, unattractive. You see, this story isn't a fairy tale about Jacob and Rachel. It's a story of an ugly duckling sister that never becomes the swan. And Leah, by all accounts, was undesirable, unattractive, and unwanted. Some might even call her ugly. And one of the things you find in this story is that even her own father dismisses her. And even her own father uses her in his own scheme. See, right here, he, u- he seizes an opportunity to capitalize on Jacob's googly obsession with Rachel to get free labor and to marry off his undesirable daughter. And Leah is the pawn in this whole scheme. Jacob doesn't want her, her father uses her, and she's disposable to them. She's, un, she's unseen by both her father and the man that she loves. And here's what happened, it says that Jacob worked for seven years, and in verse 21 it says, Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. So Laban gathered together all the people of the place and made a feast. But in the evening he took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob. And Jacob went into her, and then verse 25 it says, And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob says to Laban, What is this that you've done to me? Did I not serve you for seven years for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, It is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete this week of one, and we will give you also the other in return for serving me another seven years. And what Laban says basically is, hey, sorry, Jacob, but we typically marry the oldest daughter first. So if you want Rachel, you're going to have to work another seven years. See, Jacob just got tricked. He got conned. And Leah was used all along. But it says Jacob in verse 28, he did so and he completed her week. And then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Verse 30, it says, So Jacob went into Rachel also, and hear this, And he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served Laban for another seven years. You want to know the saddest part of this story? It's that Leah goes along with it. That she's a willing participant in this entire scam. And that she was willing to pretend to be Rachel. Rachel. You see, at ancient weddings, women were so veiled that men couldn't see the women during the ceremony. And then at the reception, it's likely that Jacob probably got very uh, intoxicated, drunk. And then you add that to a time where there's no electricity in a dark room on a wedding night. Jacob thought he was with Rachel the entire time. But it was Leah. And think about this. Leah knew the truth the entire time. She knew that she wasn't wanted. She knew that it was Rachel that he wanted. And she had to listen as Jacob probably whispered into her ear all night, Rachel, I love you. The entire wedding night, it was Rachel's name that Jacob was speaking and not Leah's. Can you imagine how painful that would be? Why would she subject herself to something like this? See, it seems that she was so desperate to be wanted, to be loved, to be attractive, to be married that she would allow someone to be tricked into marrying her. She willingly married someone whom she knew would never love her. That's heartbreaking, isn't it? Isn't it amazing just how honest, brutally honest the Scriptures are? That loneliness is real. And sometimes we're so lonely that we will go to great lengths to be loved, even if it's not the real us that's being loved. Often we will pretend to be someone else in order to be loved. We'll pretend to be someone else in order to enter into a relationship. We'll think to ourselves that we can just get someone to love, even a fake version of ourselves. That'll take away our loneliness. But most of you know that that never does. It just never does. Jacob doesn't love Leah. Leah. He loves the one whom Leah is most envious of. And just think how heartbreaking and demeaning this is for Leah. He doesn't want her, and she knows it. Her father doesn't love her, and she knows it. And now she has to live in this hell that these two men have created for her. And then think about Jacob for a moment. Jacob has been tricked. And this whole story turns on verse 25. See, the wedding night is supposed to be the climax of the story, isn't it? Like you think that's going to be the end of the story, the beginning of the happily ever after. But he wakes up, he opens his eyes, rolls over, and looks at her. In verse 25 it says, but behold, it was Leah. And imagine Jacob's disillusionment. Seven years, slaving away with Laban. And all I get is Leah, he thinks. You see, Jacob was convinced that Rachel was the solution to all of his frustrations in life. The fact that he allowed himself to be hustled. See, he knew that seven years was a ridiculous bride price, but he allowed himself to be hustled because he just wanted Rachel. He was convinced if only I could have Rachel, life would be good for me. I would be fulfilled. And it shows that he was convinced if he could only have her, his life would be satisfying. He, would be, he was convinced that she was the solution to all of his issues. If only Rachel, he may have thought. And all of us in this room, we're creatures of desire. And every one of us have an if-only in our lives. If only I could just attain this, I'd be okay. If only I could just enter into this type of relationship, I would be fine. I would be fulfilled. If only I could just achieve whatever. If only Rachel. And every one of us will pin our hopes on something that we think will offer us a final fulfillment. If only I could find a spouse, if only I could get a raise, if only I could have children, if only my children could behave, if only I could live in a better neighborhood, if only money or a savings account or a nicer apartment or fulfillment at work or on or on or on and on. If only then I will be fine and my life will hit a climax. And if you believe that, you're deceived. Because if you pin your hopes on any created thing, you will be disappointed. Because once you get it into your arms, you will see that it doesn't quench your deepest longings, even if you attain what you've always wanted. A year or so ago, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. That's the theme of that book. You can get everything you want under the sun, but if you don't have what is beyond the sun, meaning God, you'll feel empty. Solomon said that everything under the sun that he achieved in this life, it was like vapor. He tried to grab at it, whether it was money or women or power or wisdom, he would try to grab at it, but it was like vapor. It would just slip through its fingertips. C.S. Lewis says, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. The answer to your deepest longings is not to find your Rachel, whatever it is. The answer to your deepest longings is not to follow your heart or even achieve your goals. It's to look up to the one who can bear the weight of all your longings. And that's what Advent is. Looking to Jesus. The child in a manger who grew up to be the wonderful counselor, prince of peace, propitiation for our sins on the cross. The resurrected king. Look at verse 31. It says, When the Lord saw that Leah was hated, I love this honesty. Jacob probably resented her. Her father didn't care anything for her. It says, but When he saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah conceived and bore a son. Now pay attention to the names and why she chooses them. This is important. And she called the first son's name Reuben. For she said, Because the Lord looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Oh, I gave, him a, I gave him a son. Now my husband will love me. She conceived again and bore another son and said, Because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and I shall name him Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and says, Now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore his name was called Levi. And then finally it says she conceived and bore a final son and said, You know what? This time I will praise the Lord. And therefore she called his name Judah, and then she ceased bearing. And I hope you're seeing now that this story is brutally honest about our desires. See, Jacob was convinced that Rachel was the only answer to the fulfillment that he longed for. And here Leah is convinced that if only she could get Jacob to love her. And Jacob didn't love her when they got married, so now she thinks if I can just have children, Jacob will love me. And so she has Reuben, and she says, see, a son, my husband will love me. Then she has another son, and she says, Simeon, maybe God has heard my affliction, and Jacob will love me now. And then she has Levi and says, maybe, uh, maybe Jacob will be attached to me now. She wanted to be seen by Jacob. She wanted to be heard by Jacob. She wanted to be attached to Jacob, but Jacob never wanted those things with her. And I'm reminded of the woman at the well. Jesus goes and meets a woman at the well. She has five husbands. He says, go, where, where's your husband? She says, oh, I, I don't have a husband. He says, that's right. You have five, you've had five husbands, and the one you're living with now is you're, you're not even married to. And what Jesus essentially says is, look, you have looked for fulfillment in all of these men. And the first one disappointed you, and you went on to the second one. And he disappointed you, and you went on to the third. And on and on and on and on. And now you're on number six, and you've given up on the thought that marriage can bring any fulfillment. And so you're just shacking up with the guy. With no expectation that any lasting meaning could come from these relationships. And Jesus says, you've given up on finding fulfillment, but I want you to know that there is something that will quench your deepest longings. And Jesus tells her, I'm the living water. I am where you can find fulfillment. And it says here that finally Leah has a fourth son. But this time she gets it. It isn't Jacob's approval that she needs anymore. She says, you know what? I'm going to rejoice in the Lord's approval of me. She says, this time I'll praise the Lord. And names her son Judah, which means praise. Because the Lord sees me. And the Lord hears me, and the Lord loves me, and He has compassion on me. And even when my father, you know, just tricks me out, and when Jacob abuses me and wants nothing to do with me and won't attach himself to me, here comes God who has bonded himself to me. And many of us in this room daily buy into the lie that our unhappiness is caused by other people in our lives and circumstances in our lives. We think if only our circumstances could change, if we could get a certain level of success or security, if only that person would notice me, I will be happy then, we think. But you are only deceiving yourself. You're going down the same road that Leah went on with her first three sons, thinking that they could provide her something from Jacob that she really wanted, but on the fourth son, she recognized where fulfillment comes from, from the Lord who has attached himself to us. This time, Leah says, I will praise the Lord. She's no longer looking for her fulfillment in a created being, Jacob. Or she's no longer looking for her fulfillment in being loved. She's looking for her fulfillment in God alone. And she names her son Judah, which means praise. And this brings us back to Matthew chapter 1. See, Leah's name is left out of the story. But the genealogy of our Savior says Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, and Jacob had Judah. Not not his firstborn, Reuben, the fourthborn, Judah. And Judah had Perez and Zerah, which on and on and on and on leads to Joseph, the husband of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Isn't that something? That the promised hope of the Messiah is held intact through this unattractive, unwanted, unloved woman. It's a beautiful story of God's grace. And if you're in here today and you feel lonely, you feel unwanted, you feel unseen, unheard, unattached, or unloved, know that God is with you and He is attaching Himself to you in Christ. And so there are two promises I want us to look at before... Um, We move on on this first Sunday of Advent. The first thing is that God uses the weak to accomplish his purposes. Not as a pawn or an unwilling participant, but he uses the weak as a partner in his story of redemption. See, God loves the people like Leah. It says when he saw that she was hated, he opens her womb. He notices her, shows her compassion. She desperately wanted to be seen and heard and he saw her and he noticed her. And he gave her four sons, and with the final one, she recognized that God saw her. See, Jacob may never look on her with approval, but God does. See, her hopes may have been shattered, but God is now piecing them back together, and she says, I will praise the Lord. And she understands, if you read this story, she is the one that understands the promise of the gospel better than anyone else in the narrative. Better than Jacob, better than Rachel, better than Laban. She's the one who gets it. That God approved of her. And God gives her a son named Judah. And God made Leah the great, 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 on and on and on, grandmother of Jesus. That's grace. God uses the weak to shame the wise. And God uses the weak and often unwanted to mold and shape his purposes in the world. 1 Corinthians 1 the Apostle Paul says, God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And if you ever feel like a Leah, and we all do at times, just know this promise that God's heart is drawn to you and He is attaching Himself to you in Christ. Second thing I want you to see is that you may feel like a Leah. But God looks on you like a Rachel. But we all want someone to look at us the way Jacob looked at Rachel, don't we? That's what we want. And there's nothing more, there's nothing any of us want more than to know that we're loved. To be beautiful in someone else's eyes. And the gospel is the story of how this can be true. See, you may feel, you may even look like a Leah, but in Christ, God looks on you and me as beautiful and wanted. And He invites us into a relationship with Him. You see, the Gospel is not just that you're forgiven of your sins, it's that you are actually loved by God, by the only One whose approval of you truly matters and lasts forever. See, Jacob slaved for seven years for Rachel, but Jesus gave His entire life For you and for me. And the scriptures say that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. What this means is that Jesus came in this world, took on flesh, lived the perfect life, the life we could never live. And he died the death that the scriptures say we deserved. And he defeated death and he rose from the grave and he says that all who will call upon his name and will confess that he is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, and this is what we celebrate at baptism, you will be saved. And what it means to be saved is that all your sin, all your junk, all your mess that you're holding and that you're carrying with you and all the perfection and righteousness and beauty that Jesus lived out on his earth, when you confess that Jesus is Lord, it says he covers you with his blood. And cleanses you from all unrighteousness. And what that means is that there's coming a day when you will stand in front of God the judge and he will look at you and he will not see you. He will not see all that you have done. He will not see all your flaws and all your failures. He'll look at you and because you're in Christ, he'll see Jesus and he'll say, come on in, welcome to my kingdom. When you are in Christ, you are now judged as Christ. And God looks at you with, these, with eyes that He is drawn to you because He sees you as beautiful, because He sees you like Christ. Because my sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just was satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. And God is placing you into His story as a recipient of His grace and as an active participant in the story of God. Your name is in the book. <laughs> There's a genealogy and we're like, isn't it amazing that Judah's name is in this book? Your name is in the book. The scriptures say that there's the the Lamb's book of life and your name is in it. Your name is graven on his hands if you are in Christ. And that means your name is in the book. And you may be here and you don't like the story of your life, but you can get your life back. This time... You may have had three other shots, or you may have had many, many more. You may have had five other husbands, and the one you're living with is not your husband. You may have had all these stories, but you can say, this time, this time, I'll praise the Lord. In this season of Advent, it's time to shift our focus off of what we don't have and to look at what we do have in Christ. We have a God who loves us and approves of us. He loves you and approves of you. Regardless of what your past is, regardless of what your baggage is, God is pleased to forgive you and call you into His family. And this is what Advent is it's a time of us looking forward and trusting and believing in faith that just like God used Leah, God can use even the saddest and most confusing events of our lives, even our failures, to bring about His fame and His glory. Isn't that good news? Joy to the world. At Advent, we look back to the birth of Jesus, but we also look forward to the day where he is making all things new. And on that day, all of your Leah moments, those moments where it felt like God was absent and that your life was worthless, all those moments will make sense in the light of his glory and his grace.